0: There's a desperate need for white folks who want to do racial justice work or their own healing to really sit with this, to really look at this and understand that decolonization is not about doing this for someone else. It's also about doing it for you.
1: Whoa. I'm so excited for this episode, for you to listen to it. Uh, Camille Barton is an artist, writer, somatic educator who works on the intersections of wellness, drug policy, and transformative justice. And in this episode, we talk about somatics, the body, right? How does trauma show up in the body of black people and white people and of people of the global majority? what are some of the causes of ancestral trauma, right? So trauma that was lived by your ancestors and passed down to you. And how can we start healing that? How can white people do ancestral trauma work and ancestor work? As in, where do you come from? What is your story? What is your story with oppression? Because if you go back far enough, I'm guessing there is one. We touch on the effects of living in a hyperproductive society that values productivity over humans and what it means to come down off of capitalism, Uh, the importance of ongoing grief ritual in social justice work, Uh, the importance of getting out of your head and dropping into your body and what can everybody do to get out of your head and to drop into your body. This is a fantastic episode. I'm so, so, so excited to share it with you and so grateful that Camille took the time to share with us their wisdom. My name is Sean Galinas, and this is The Love Drive. Nice. Uh, Okay, so Camille, yes, could you please introduce yourself?
0: Sure. My name is Camille Barton. I'm an artist, writer, and somatic educator working on the intersections of wellness, drug policy, and transformative justice.
1: Oh, I introduced you correctly on Instagram today with those exact words. Yay! (laughs) And we have a friend in common. We do. Yeah. We probably have more than one friend in common, but we do have Zoe Bender in common. Mm -hmm. So, like I said earlier, I'm a little out of my depths here. Uh, I usually talk about intimacy, sexuality, relationships, and communication. Uh, When it comes to racial justice, social justice, uh, trauma and somatics, drug policy, These are not things that I know a lot about, which is why I'm excited that we're talking today. Mm. And I'm kind of curious where do we start with a topic that is huge.
0: Mm. I mean, it's interesting. First, firstly, I'd love to you know thank you for naming uh, that this feels a little bit uncomfortable or like not what you normally talk about because I think the only way we can learn and move into these issues more deeply is when we we're real about where we're at. So I think that's a really valuable place to start. Um, And in terms of the subject matter you normally deal with, intimacy and relationships, I think that's also a great place to situate this, that um, in order to have healthy relationships with people who have experienced racism or currently targeted by racism or whose ancestors have been, Um, then that is inherently going to be part of the relationships that we have with people of color, people with racial trauma. And so if we want to be in deeper connection, then it's important to acknowledge the impact this has had on the lives of these folks, myself being one of them, um, and lean into that and work out how we can be in solidarity. So I think that this has a big overlap with intimacy and connection as well. And I hope that the opportunity we have now to really uh, dive into these issues and start healing them will allow for a lot more closeness and Mm. and deeper relationships between people of different racial groups.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, You mentioned generational trauma. Mm. I guess we could start talking about somatics and how that shows up because there's this idea that like the body can hold trauma from past generations. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could speak about how that shows up and what the impacts of that are.
0: So somatics is an area that I'm really deeply interested in. Um, Embodiment generally is becoming more trendy these days, but somatics is basically an area of research and practice that's looking at uh, the living body, like what it means to be alive in a body and to sense into the world. And for me, the particular interest is looking at how social justice overlaps with this. Like, what does it mean to be alive in a body that is queer, that is black, uh, that is trans, that has been imprisoned? You know, what are the impacts on the living body as a result of these experiences? So it's super interesting way to get a bit deeper into these social justice issues, which for many have been quite heavy with academic terms and, you know, lots of reading and not so experiential. So I really love the overlap and think it's uh, um, a useful way to kind of understand this more from a lived experience perspective. So two authors to reference just from the get-go who've done a lot around somatics and racial trauma, particularly from an African-American perspective, Resma Menekem. Um, who's got an amazing book called My Grandmother's Hands and prior to Resma doing this work on cultural somatics I think he was very inspired by Joy DeGruy who's done a lot of work on what she calls uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome. Joy DeGruy is a therapist and former social worker and did a lot of research on essentially kind of mapping a PTSD diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder um, but it, kind of expanding that to look at a lot of the, the patterns and impacts that intergenerational racial trauma has had on Black people. So for anyone who wants to just go deep into some, some resources, those are good places to start. To speak about it from my own terms, though, it's really looking at how these legacies of things that were done to our ancestors really kind of live on and are passed down to us um, on an epigenetic level.
1: Mm.
0: So there's a whole area of research within biology within the sciences on epigenetics, which is kind of looking at which genes um, get switched on or off, depending on a variety of factors. And there's quite a lot of interesting research looking at, for example, descendants of survivors of the Holocaust or survivors of folks who were in Japanese internment camps. And their descendants have certain genes that are switched on in their bodies um, that correlate to higher levels of stress and essentially would would make it seem that those descendants had themselves been through the same experiences, mm. which they haven't. They've come later, mm. but their bodies are programmed um, through these genes that are kind of activated to be expecting these kind of very stressful scenarios and to be um, responding to it in that, in that kind of way. So I, I don't want to get, too, um, much more deeply into epigenetics sure. beyond beyond like <laughs> how I could speak to it accurately. <laughs> but um, from a social sciences perspective, this is really fascinating to me because it, it kind of scientifically gives an argument to say that it's not like people just need to get over it, mm. um, that this, this thing can just be moved on from. People's bodies have literally been affected and continue to be affected by these experiences that their ancestors have had. So when we think about it in that sense, that's just one way we can see that um, these experiences and traumas from racism are very real and do have, a, have an impact on our bodies, how we move through the world, um, our stress response, how safe we feel, um, propensity for certain illnesses. Um, yeah, there's a lot that's still been carried and a lot of healing that would be beneficial to do but it's difficult to kind of begin that work if you're living in a society which tells you that a you just need to get over it and mm. b that it wasn't really that bad and c that you know you should just be happy with your lot and um, make the best of it. Yeah. So I think there's yeah a lot that needs to be acknowledged and then we can really begin deeper conversations around how we heal and um, not just for black people or those with racial trauma but um, the whole all of society really and the ways that we have been Complicit in dehumanizing others because of these uh, systems of racial hierarchy, and I guess there's one more thing I just remembered I wanted to say on this. So the current system of racial hierarchy that we have now um, in the West, but also that has affected the globe, is only about four or five hundred years old. It's not that old. It really has a big overlap with the slave codes that were developed during transatlantic slave trade, and then the ways. That that was further entrenched during colonization. Um, prior to that, you've had different forms of prejudice and um, discrimination. But we, this system that we're used to of thinking about whiteness and blackness and the hierarchies that come from that, is actually relatively new. So I think that hopefully provides a little bit more agency that we have—a feeling that it hasn't been like this forever. It, this is a very um, historically recent phenomenon.
1: And I'm guessing that if you have PTSD, post-traumatic slave syndrome, mm-hmm. or some form of ancestral trauma, and you have, like you said, uh, those genetic markers are kind of switched on, which makes you more likely to react or more likely to like have to deal with systemic stress, mm-hmm. that's going to affect every aspect of your life Mm -hmm. your ability to like your ability to form deep relationships your ability to like get jobs i mean like i can just imagine that those the effects of stress can be like debilitating
0: yeah i think there's there's a lot of factors that are kind of compounding on each other so totally i think that there, there have been biological um, effects. I think from from this kind of legacies of trauma, and I definitely want to research more into, yeah, looking at, at what this shows up as. Um, refresh, refresh myself to Joy DeGruy's work, but I think the systemic inequality that has existed, you know, in the United States since its inception, and that continues to exist, you know, in continental Europe as well as other parts of the world means that whatever intergenerational factors are already there are like compounded with massive discrimination in most institutions, whether that's in education, in health, accessing housing, um, just all these day-to-day facets of existence. There are barriers and sometimes actively violent experiences um, in just trying to navigate very simple things. And so I think that's what Causes what some some social scientists refer to as weathering, just um, specifically used in relation to Black women, who often have very different health outcomes when it comes to stress than their white counterparts, because it's not just as simple as oh, okay, I get I get this illness. Um, you might have the illness, and you've already been dealing with microaggressions, you know, for thirty plus years. Um, you've already been dealing with racism in your workplace, in your school, at your job. And it, this kind of has a um, an effect of kind of piling up and reducing, yeah, reducing health, reducing wellness, vitality, mm. not to mention the different realities of care that black people experience when they actually do go into the health system. So yeah, I think these things do add up, especially when we consider the realities of kind of systemic oppression in, in day-to-day life.
1: Yeah, it does feel very, like it has a compound effect mm-hmm. that just makes it harder to deal, right? There's systemic oppression, there's systems that are meant to oppress Black folks and then add on to that, the uh, like an elevated stress state.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that just feels like, well, it feels unjust, obviously, but it also feels like feels hard to move through and move past. Mm-hmm. Some of the literature that you uh, passed on to me before we sat down to talk, we um, talked about like how to deal with how to like somatically move through this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, therapy, uh, there's a whole bunch of um, embodiment practices. And some of those aren't really available to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm kind of curious, like, how do we even start to heal this trauma in the body? Mm. That's such a good question. Ah. I know it's a big one.
0: Yeah, it is. I suppose I can split it up by thinking about um, what folks who identify as white can do and what folks who identify as people of color or black um, or people of the global majority, which is my preferred term, uh, which I'm trying to seed. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a good one.
1: People of the global majority.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can
1: you just speak a little bit on that just so that we can start seeding it more totally
0: um well if we think of racism as a system having affected you know our language our ways of thinking this is a case in point that we tend to refer to ethnic minority groups quite a lot um or in the uk where i grew up we have a horrible acronym that's the official acronym um BAME, which is Black Asian Minority Ethnic. So it just lumps together basically every other group of <laughs> people that aren't white. But there's always the sense of like, you are the minority, uh, which may be the case in certain Western countries. But in terms of the global population, uh, the population of the earth is made up of majority of people who are not white.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's something that we tend to forget, something that... Um, is not really in conversation when we are considering the impact the Western world has on the entire world in terms of finance and ways of thinking and, you know, just still quite neo-colonial ways of operating. So I just like the term because it sort of turns that on its head a little bit and plays with it. Um, and it's actually just factually accurate Yeah, that non-white people are the, the majority of the population of the planet. So I think, yeah it's it, it's just good for people to notice like if that causes some discomfort um you know breathing into that and just noticing yeah what does it mean if that is the reality and yet we're constantly referring to groups as
1: minorities have you found a way to make it sound good as an acronym because <laughs> i feel like that's um. <laughs> that's sort of a hurdle for adoption you know Agree, agree. I should also say that this term comes
0: from reevaluation counseling, which is something yeah Zoe and I um, have in common. Zoe actually introduced me to reevaluation counseling, and the te- the, the acronym they use is POGM, so P O G M. Okay, POGM. okay,
1: you, you get, okay, <laughs> Pogum. You get rid of the the. Got it. Yeah, and then was it? It was um, black Asian minority. What was it? The
0: black Asian minority ethnic. That's it's, the UK term. How do they, yeah. is that BAMI? BAME. BAME. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, all right. So, yeah. okay, so So there was two, there was, you were going to break the answer down into two, what white people can do and what uh, people of the global majority can do.
0: Yes, um, I can start with people of the global majority. So for me, I've been actively experimenting on myself Since I was in my early teens with dance, and I grew up in a meditation community, so I've also been exposed to that from a young age. But really trying to notice and sense into my body and just track, you know, what's happening if I'm experiencing a moment of discrimination. Is my body tensing? You know, I noticed for a long time that I would clench my buttocks quite a lot if I was, say, in a white dominated space and feeling invisible or hypervisible, just starting to notice what my body is doing in those moments and then when I do feel in a safe place later on, um, just finding ways to soften, whether that's through having a really invigorating dance session, doing some breath work and kind of focusing on allowing tension to release from my body with my exhalation um, or doing more kind of embodied self-regulation strategies. Such as shaking or TRE, which is a kind of, um, I guess, an organization that does kind of shaking, therapeutic tremoring. But yeah, I really started to experiment with different practices that would allow my nervous system to come down and to relax more after being in stressful situations. I think what can be challenging for a lot of pogum, myself included, is that, you know, many of us experience hypervigilance, which is kind of, just having a very, very heightened stress response, um, whether that means you know loud noises kind of terrifying set you off or um, you have a kind of fear of being watched, feeling just hyper-aware of how people are perceiving you to a level that's not very healthy. Um, and when that's happening, there's a lot of freeze in the body or sometimes dissociation. And so if that's your normal, it can be difficult to even notice if there's anything out of the ordinary with that. And I think many people, myself included, you know, found ways to self-medicate, you know, just to kind of come down a little bit and be able to focus on work or taking public transport or whatever is happening. So I think for me, what's been useful is really getting to know my own stress response, understanding what the what the signals are when I am going into freeze or when I am dissociating and not able to feel my body, mm. um, and then developing tools. To kind of get back into my body or to help my nervous system just click down and i think that this is a consistent practice to be developed it's not going to happen overnight but the more we can kind of develop a, a toolkit of of practices that work for us um then the more responsive we can be in those moments being like okay i need to go in a separate space for five minutes and and do some breath work or do some some embodied regulation to just bring myself down and for any pogum or anyone else really who wants to do some training with a really great organization who do embodied somatic self-regulation trainings um i can't recommend enough lumos transforms which is l-u-m-o-s lumos transforms um really great organization based in la run by nchem who's a fantastic african American woman, um, midwife and somatic practitioner. And they do a course called Anchoring Resilience, which is giving a kind of toolkit of, you know, six to ten practices um that you can do and just do regularly, as well as kind of mapping out how to track your stress response cycle and really learn how to bring yourself down when it's an appropriate moment to do so. Because sometimes, you know, your stress response is telling you to move and it's a good thing, you need to move, (laughs) you know um the stress response can be really helpful in getting us out of dangerous situations. But I think for many of us who have intergenerational trauma and are navigating, living in a world that can often be quite hostile to us, often the levels of stress we're experiencing are not healthy.
1: Mm.
0: They're not actually in service of of being able to just exist, you know, with presence. Um so yeah, I would say if anyone is interested in in doing some training, Around that, they're
1: really great uh, to work with. And we're, we're gonna—I'm gonna link to everything, any resource you share. I will link to in the show notes. Uh, I just want to pause really quick here uh, to maybe talk about like how paradoxical this is. Uh, and and the more I do any work, the more I realize that humans are incredibly paradoxical in mm-hmm. in everything we do. And I was reading. Uh, an article and this last week I read a lot of people's experiences around protesting and and there was a white journalist who was walking with a bunch of black folks and there was like flashbang flashbang grenades went off or something and he totally flipped out, right? Because he'd mm-hmm. never been around that kind of stress. Or like mm-hmm. you know, auditory and physical trauma, and so he had like these crazy responses, right? Where he like cowered and fell over, and and it, what what he saw was a lot of the the people around him didn't even phase them. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. black folks just keeping keep on walking. Like yeah, this is normal. Like this is mm-hmm. I'm used to this. Yeah, and so that speaks a little bit to the this idea of uh, disassociating. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe in the protest, like you're, some people might be used to having those stimulus. And Mm -hmm. so we'll just kind of shut that down to keep doing what it is that they're doing, which is like protesting, there's action, there's movement here. And, uh, and so he sort of the journalist, the white journalist sort of, in that moment, had a felt experience of what it must feel like to be in contact with those stimulus on it, you know, over and over and over again.
0: Yeah. I mean, for many people, I guess, who don't know because they don't live in these areas or have to deal with these things, it's like a constant onslaught if you live in certain neighborhoods that are mostly Pogham, mostly African heritage. I used to live in West Oakland, and I was teaching um, or working as a youth worker at Restorative Justice School. And yeah, it's constant that you're hearing sirens. Often there'll be helicopters, just sensory overload. And I think that, in part, it is a way to enforce control and dominance and to incite fear into those communities. You know, it's something I even see to an extent in Berlin, where I live now. I'm in a very culturally, ethnically diverse community, and we have sirens going off at all times of day and night, even when the road is completely clear. And to my mind, I just don't understand Why that is necessary? Because you don't see that happening in more middle-class or white-dominated areas, where peace and quiet and the ability to kind of relax and think is prioritized. And yet, in certain communities, there's almost opposite tactics being used to yeah maintain high levels of stress in those communities. So, yeah, I'm I'm not surprised that was shocking for this for this reporter. Um, Yeah,
1: really, really quickly, is it? you think a policy of police departments in pogrom communities to, you know, run the siren when they don't need to make more noise when they don't need to, or is that something that's just like they subconsciously or unconsciously do it because that's what they've always done.
0: I'm fairly confident that it is a tactic that is being utilized just as, um, active harassment of people of color, people of global majority is also an active tactic. Um, You know, I know in the U.S. there's actually quotas that police departments have to fill in terms of arrests. And so what they tend to do a lot of the time is to go to these neighborhoods and just harass people who are on the street, who are hanging out with their friends. So, I, you know, I can't necessarily cite in this moment to um, (laughs) any kind of proof of, of the sirens being used in that way, but um, given the the range of harassment tactics that the police often enact on working class and communities of color, it would not surprise me. I guess that's the most diplomatic way I can <laughs> I can say. It. You
1: would not be surprised if a document came up came about with these tactics written down on them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's let's go back into it if you're okay with that. Um, do sure. you have other strategies or practices or tools that um, people of the global majority can use to sort of calm the nervous system or practice embodiment?
0: Sure. I think that um, herbal medicine or plant medicine is another really powerful tool, at least in my life. I drink a lot of herbal tea, (laughs) specifically adaptogens which are plants that help you regulate your nervous system. So my, one of my favorites at the moment is Tulsi. I drink a lot of Tulsi. If I'm having a hard time sleeping before bed in a chamomile tea, We have made friends with some plants that just help me um, release stress and, again, regulate my nervous system so that I can be a more peaceful and functional human. Mm. And then, yeah, just practicing joy. Any, any kind of activity that allows me to feel joyful and feel pleasure in my body, I think is, is a beautiful thing. So for me, that looks like dancing quite frequently. Um, masturbation, I think, is a really underrated tool for, again, joy, pleasure, and wellness. And yeah, just prioritizing rest as well, naps, um, taking naps, especially in this time of the pandemic you know, trying to work from home and reminding myself, oh, I'm not working from home, I'm working in a pandemic. Right. So it makes a lot of sense to, to nap and to take time to, yeah, allow allow my body to catch up with all the information that's, um, that I'm sensing into and the overwhelm that can come from that. So yeah, those are just a few, a few things that work for me.
1: Are you familiar, speaking of teas, are you familiar with genostemma? I am not familiar
0: with Genostema. S- speaking
1: no. of adaptogens, um, it is a tea that's used in some Asian cultures. They found it, I I, I don't remember the country, but in some countries uh, where they have like the highest number of folks over 100 years old. Wow. And those particular communities drink a ton of Genostema. It's not a stimulant, though it does have stimulating properties. It, it's a, I think it comes from the, The melon family. It's a vine. Mm, So that might be fun if you need a little bit of extra energy and you want and you prioritize longevity, Mm. which feels like a good thing to have. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I just want to speak to this the importance of rest and relaxation and taking care of self, because Mm. you know, if you can't do that, you can't really take care of others. Mm -hmm. And we just kind of we need it and You know, a lot of people's um, sense of worth is tied to their productivity. Mm -hmm. And there's probably some systemic reason for that. I'm not, I don't know. I could probably guess, but uh, what I want to say is that we all need to rest and Mm -hmm. that we are all worthy. People have heard me say this before, just by waking up in the morning, not having done a goddamn thing. Mm. You know, you're worthy. You don't need to do a ton of stuff, especially if you're feeling you know this desire, this pull to rest, like I just want people to rest and then mas- mm. and then masturbate also.
0: Agree. I think that I yeah, I totally resonate with everything you're saying around rest and I think that capitalism and hypercapitalism that we've been living under particularly since the 1980s when everything you know went super neoliberal and privatized there's really been a push to almost have human beings become like machines Mm -hmm. you know automated and totally tied to productivity as our sense of worthiness and i think that's for all all people living under capitalism but then you know especially for people who are targeted by racism there's this way that uh, if you grow up in a black family, it's very common that, you know, you'll have several kind of talks with your parents, one of which will be, well, sweetheart, you have to work twice as hard to get anywhere. You have to be excellent. You have to put the work in because, you know, you being excellent will mean that you might get considered next to a mediocre white person. Yep. Um, so that's just one of the talks that you you usually get exposed to as a black, a black person growing up um, in the West. At least and so I think there's almost a deeper level of repatterning that I've had to go through during the pandemic of kind of coming down off off capitalism and this um, hyper sense of needing to like prove my worth and prove that I'm good enough and um, that I can do these things and I realized there was yeah quite a lot of unhealthy unhealthy kind of energy around this for me because of. Yeah, I suppose the ways that the world often seems to have more barriers and I feel like I have to push and strive harder to, to get where I want to go. Um, but rest right now has seen like, seemed like the most radical, one of the most radical things I can do to really embody this idea of, yeah, like you're saying, I am worthy of just waking up and being and being at peace and having a body that is rested and functional. But it's, yeah, it's challenging. It's really challenging to kind of let that go when um on so many levels you're kind of being told that you're not good enough and then also living under hyper capitalism, where for many of us we don't have the opportunity to rest because we have to work all the time just to kind of make things make things work
1: and that you you might not have you probably won't have access to the same opportunities
0: mm-hmm. as
1: as like your white counterpart
0: mm. yeah. I mean, for me also, it's good to, to note that I, I do have a lot of privilege. You know, there are, there are things I've had access to that many Black people don't, and that's real. So even being in a position where I can speak to, to these things, that I can work for myself, um, I'm aware there's a certain yeah, level of access that I do have beyond what many other Black people experience but that makes it all the more important for me to kind of name that and say, you know, don't see me as the, as the rule. (laughs) I'm kind of, I suppose one of the people that would be pointed to as the exception or I guess growing up in a uh, white middle-class part of North London, you know, I was very much uh, kind of groomed to feel like I should be talking on behalf of people. and, And that's not, that's not the dominant experience for black people going through the education system. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a weird, it's a weird position to be in where you're kind of being told you're the exception. It's part of internalized racism, which it's a whole other
1: other portal we could go into. Um We only have 90 minutes.
0: <laughs> we don't have enough time to go into all the things.
1: Well, what what I'm committing to continuing to have these conversations because they're deeply important and it is such a huge topic. So, mm-hmm. if you're listening, yeah. to, if you're a listener of the Love Drive and uh, you're curious, we'll keep listening because I will keep having these conversations. Wonderful. So, should we switch to Do you have other other tools for Pogham folks or do you want to speak to what white folks can do because i also have some questions about (laughs) we can kind of jump into like why white white people can't dance and Uh. (laughs) i feel like i feel like this is connected and i mean it is connected and i can make it i can make the connection so i just want to i just want to say that we're we're going to talk about that (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay great great
1: can you make i wasn't a, can, expecting you to bring that one out but i'm i'm happy to go there well i mean you gave. i mean you gave me the link right so <laughs> what, did you want me to read it and not say anything about it i thought it was i thought it was fascinating okay let's, it is right yeah it is yeah. Let, let's 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 bridge there can you can you bridge us can you bridge us? yeah
0: more? totally okay this is a great segue actually so what i would have said before around tools that white people can use to kind of navigate this work I think ancestor work is really, really important for white people to be doing, Um, always, but particularly in this time. A lot of white friends say to me, oh, well, I don't even know my family very well, let alone have any idea who my ancestors were, which I say, okay, that's fair enough. But you will probably have some understanding of where your people migrated from. Mm. And that's a great place to start, if understanding the cultural practices of, say, Um, Polish folks or Irish folks, Italian folks, particularly before they were assimilated into the US and into kind of more, in inverted commas, European ways of being. So when these communities still had traditional customs and rituals and practices, ways of working with the land, that really understanding these ancestral legacies is really important because you will come to realize that there has been a severing for you too.
1: Yeah.
0: That there was a deep severing and disconnection from these traditional nature-based community-based ways of living into being kind of co-opted and assimilated into your racial hierarchy where suddenly we identify as white and we have this power over others now. But in the midst of kind of doing that deal with the devil, a lot of people's ancestors have had to do away with their practices and customs. Mm. Do away with their ways of grieving, with their ways of celebrating, their ways of really feeling rooted to particular peoples and a place, or in order to kind of sit at the table of whiteness. And there is a lot of trauma that comes with that, too, a huge amount of trauma that comes with that. And I think until white people really feel into that, into that void space, this sense of emptiness of like, who am I? I don't have history, I don't have culture. Until you feel into that and actually find those stories. Find that place of severing. It will be very difficult, in my opinion, for you to do collective liberation work, for you to really do um, social change work for everyone, rather than just out of a place of guilt or shame. Mm. And I think that's an important differentiation to make. I mean, I would like people to do the work any which way, but my my heartfelt preference, my deep heartfelt preference, would be for people to do this work not because, oh, I pity them over there, but because my liberation is tied up with their liberation.
1: Mm.
0: I think that is the most sustainable place it can come from. And the reality is that all people who have European ancestry, at some point, those ancestors were colonized as well, most likely by the Roman Empire. There's lots of resources you can look into with this, some on a platform called White Awake, who do great work um, for white folks who want to do anti-racism work with a kind of Dharma med- meditation embodied approach. Um, and they talk a lot about ancestor work and how important it is to go back and to, to feel into this. Um, but at some point that severing will have happened and it will have come with violence. Um, you know, the Dark Ages, were called the Dark Ages for a reason, because there was a huge amount of torture and violence that white bodies enacted onto other white bodies. And so when we talk about intergenerational trauma, that's also there in the mix too for white people. These centuries of violence and deep torture and horrible practices that were enacted onto each other and then linking to people going and settling and colonizing new lands or new lands in inverted commas lands of other people you know and then enacting that violence that was formerly being perpetuated between white people suddenly onto the uh, you know the exotic other onto indigenous people onto african heritage bodies and really reinscribing um, and supporting this, this system of racial hierarchy that we have had now for the last few hundred years. So I think there's, there's a desperate need for white folks who want to do racial justice work or their own healing to really sit with this,
1: right.
0: You know, to really look at this, um, and understand that decolonization is not about doing this for someone else. It's also about doing it for you. Mm. It's also about doing it for your ancestors and, yeah, kind of dealing with the dirty laundry, as it were, that has accumulated over a lot of time. So I I kind of, you know, I I have to side-eye a lot of spiritual communities and New Age communities that talk about healing, often sort of appropriating other people's spiritual practices because they don't actually want to look at their own, uh, you know, the trauma that their ancestors have perpetuated onto others which Which links to that deep cycle of their own ancestors being oppressed and assimilated into whiteness. Um, so for me personally, I don't think healing work can for white people can necessarily be that deep if if this piece is is missing, mm. if there's a complete bypassing of of this historical legacy which has shaped the world that we live in and continue to to grapple with today. So I think, yeah. Reading about this is a great place to start, but also feeling into it and using tools like meditation, using tools like movement and embodied self-regulation as well to to try and regulate your nervous systems as you as you grapple with these topics. Um, as I've said, and will be in the show notes, White Awake is a great place to start. Even if for those who are interested in somatics and maybe already have somatic practices, trying to bring that into your daily life. So if you're walking down the street And you happen to be around, you know, people of color. Feel into your body. Notice how your body is reacting. Are you holding tension? Are you feeling safe or unsafe? What is the feeling in your body? Pay attention to that and notice that and breathe through that because that will give you some signals, and that will hopefully allow you to become more responsive rather than reactive um, about how you then behave to other bodies. And, and being able to really check in with your mind and check in with your integrity about how you want to um, be in relation to others. Because I think a lot of this trauma, as well as the systemic oppression and the media images of, of associating black bodies with criminality and all of these things, mean that many white people are out there reacting
1: mm.
0: on some feelings, mm. on some deep embodied feelings that they don't understand <laughs> and not using their brains. We have to understand that racism is not just about what you're thinking. It's not just about how you vote. It is about embodied trauma and embodied legacies and stories that have been passed down from our grandparents and from their parents, you know, down a long line. And until we get to really feel into what's going on on an embodied level and understand that feelings of safety, feelings of um, connection, They're not neutral. They don't come from nowhere. They're often related to these systems of oppression. And so it's a really useful starting point to just feel into that. And it might be uncomfortable, but the more you can be aware of what's happening in your body, the more control you will have to start uh, working through that and getting to a place where you can respond rather than react in situations. And that's really crucial because for a long time now, there's been white people reacting in all sorts of ways, which are incredibly violent and oppressive to bodies of color or people that they find threatening, or you know sometimes don't find threatening, but just deliberately want to cause pain and harm to you. So it's a spectrum, but I think that's also a great place to start.
1: Oh my god, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I mean, it is so. First of all, thank you for for that. Um, it's kind of mind blowing. This, uh, idea that like, if you can't feel into this struggle, like, sure, you, you might be able to help and you can do some racial justice work, but that's not a great motivator. You can kind of like lose steam with that. If you just like feel guilty or you're doing it because you feel like you should do it and rather to connect with your own story. Mm. Uh, in your body, right? Like when was there a a severance and like, where do you come from? Mm -hmm. Where do your ancestors, like what is that story there and how can you connect to that story and how can you connect that story to what's happening right now Mm -hmm. is so much more powerful than like, Oh, I'm doing this because I think I should Mm -hmm. Uh, or because I feel guilty. So first of all, thank you for that. Now I'm, sort of inspired to go and look at, you know, the story of like how my grandparents went from Greece to Egypt, to Australia. Mm. And, and then how my dad, you know, ended up in Europe and then eventually in, in, um, in Canada. Uh, Cause I don't know the story. Mm. I don't know the story. and I don't know the story. You know, that my mom says she's whatever a quarter indigenous or something like she doesn't know the story. Mm. And so like get, curious about like, what is that story? Where does it come from? How far back does it go? Mm -hmm. Um, So first of all, thanks for that. Second of all, what you spoke about is sort of what I read up on uh, the article you sent me, the roots of white supremacy are in our bodies. And is Mm -hmm. that by, is that by, I don't know if I can pronounce this correctly.
0: That's by Madeleine Rust I, who's also uh, someone who grew up in Canada yeah.
1: Durust I. Okay, that was the one I was... <laughs> <wasn't> yeah. <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah.
0: She's a wonderful, wonderful somatic practitioner, but really working on um, these issues of kind of transformational justice and how we how we can navigate this in the body.
1: Now, one of the things that came up when I read that was this idea of implicit memory versus implicit association that I found like fascinating, right? Implicit memory being like there's a memory that you have that sort of informs the way you act. So let's say you had a tall kindergarten teacher that was mean to you, you might have implicit bias against tall people, mm-hmm. right? We And that makes sense. We can all like figure that out, right? But implicit association speaks to this idea that if you are often seeing bodies of color, people of color portrayed as criminals on media, on TV, in the news, in stories then you will have an implicit association that people of color bodies of color are criminals mm-hmm. and that when you see one you will have a response in the body mm-hmm. a fear response that this person might hurt you mm-hmm. and so you might be the type of person that never would never have like an interpersonal racist argument or situation with somebody but still have those implicit associations and that affects how you are in the world and also affects Mm -hmm. how you think and how you view communities of color Mm -hmm. i found that like mind-blowing
0: yeah yeah it really is
1: maybe it's just maybe it's basic i don't know but to me it, it felt kind of like a perspective i hadn't considered at all
0: yeah i think it opens up a whole new terrain of you know what are we doing when we're doing anti-racism work or anti-oppression work, you know, so much of what I grew up with as an as someone who, oh, you know, if someone calls me an activist, I'm like, cool, great. I don't personally identify as an activist anymore, even though that has been a strong identity for me for most of my life. Um, maybe that's by a different conversation. But part of what turned me off with a lot of traditional activism was how heady it is, how much it's really about words and codes and language and is often quite, at least in the West and what I experienced, often quite divorced from the body and often quite separate from really feeling into how do we show up and be in solidarity with each other on an embodied level? Like, what does it mean for my body to show care to your body? Like that was really not part of the conversation. It was like, okay, we're going to protest. We're going to show up here and we're going to, um, we're going to do this action you know, but in the planning meetings, there often be a lot of sexism coming out. A real classic is um, a lot of anti groups have so much white privilege stuff coming up, like don't take leadership from, from people of color, aren't trying to get input, and just assuming that they know what's going on because they're antifa. And so even within these movements that are often working for liberation as such, the same dynamics at play within those communities mm. and It's going to take, you know, something else other than having read the right books, being able to have the right conversation, you know, with the right, uh, words and phrases, it has to come deeper and actually come into the body and an awareness of what it means to demonstrate solidarity with our bodies, what it means to, um, to relinquish power and to give up positions of dominance and stop putting people in subordinate positions and um you know to really feel into that we have to be thinking about the body a lot more as well as these implicit and unconscious ways of acting um that are so normalized in our society so i think that yeah when we do that we can actually go a lot more deeper into this work and um make it more sustainable and transformative
1: mm. and so let's draw the bridge to this idea that white people can't dance <laughs> Gosh, Sean, what a great transition. (laughs) I can kind of get there. I think you can get there a lot better than I can.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think we can do it. All right. Let's go. So this piece that I sent you is by Tada Hazumi, who is, yeah, definitely one of my brain crushes at the moment. Uh, Tada is, I believe, Japanese heritage, living in Canada and uh, born and raised in Canada, and Tada has a platform called Selfish Activist, and this was one of the blog pieces that I read on Selfish Activist mm, two two years ago, maybe a bit longer ago. It's kind of this idea that is looking at this phenomenon or this trope of like why white people can dance, why there seems to be a stiffness or an awkwardness sometimes with white people and moving their bodies freely, and it's written this one piece by a former hip hop da- or current hip hop dancer who is white who talks about her journey in getting into hip-hop and realizing that there was a huge amount of awkwardness and um, discomfort in her body in trying to do these movements. And as she was able to learn um, the dances and kind of get deeper into it, as well as understanding what it took to be in solidarity with um, Black communities, there was this kind of transformation that happened for her internally. And the somatic piece really relates Uh, when when thinking about what I was just talking about a moment ago about colonization and the impact, the physical impact that colonization has had on white peoples. And one of the manifestations of that is this kind of um, rigidity in the spine and locking of the hips. So a way that we can kind of almost track the impact of colonization or whiteness on the body is linked to rigidity, uh, a lack of movement, a lack of being able to, to soften and to, yeah, and to and to literally move in certain ways, um, which isn't to say you know that white people can't dance. Many white people dance beautifully, and I don't think there is you know one set way to dance. But the piece is really speaking to this this commonality that for many people who identify as white, there is this kind of embodied stiffness and tension that we can really relate to processes of colonization. Um, whether it's you know the processes of sitting in chairs. Uh, which compress the spine in an awful way and um, many other practices, physical practices and also emotional practices that um, kind of mark this this process that we've been in for a long time. And I just, as a dancer and a movement enthusiast, I just got a lot from that piece with the kind of overlaps of dance and somatics and, you know, tracking the kind of embodied effects of colonization.
1: Yeah. And I think the way, if I understood this correctly or the way I understand it is that um, colonization. There was a disconnect that happened with the body. Right the the price the price of sitting at the table mm-hmm. meant that you had to give up a lot of your cultures, movements, practices, uh, mm-hmm. da- forms of dance, and yeah. th- that has basically shut off your ability to feel into your body. And mm-hmm. that that also was a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. And uh, the trauma locks up the use of predominantly can, can lock up the use of the, the psoas, mm. which is like how you move your hips, mm-hmm. like your trunk, like how you move your hips in your trunk, which mm-hmm. can lead to like some awkward movements. Yeah. And it that's sort of connected to this piece of, I'm hoping that you can speak to the importance, uh, sort of the importance of white people to tolerate the discomfort Mm -hmm. of having these conversations of doing this work. Right. So, and that's also sort of connected to white fragility, right? Like not being able to even tolerate any sort of discomfort when we're talking about racism and what role white people have played in white supremacy. And so can you speak to the piece of being able to sit with discomfort in the body?
0: I guess a good place to start is by saying that we, we all need to grieve. You know, we really need to grieve not as a one-time thing, but as a as a regular practice. Something I'm doing at the moment is I'm actually researching grief rituals on behalf of an environmental nonprofit. Um, so I'm quite deep into into thinking about grief and understanding that for many traditional cultures or indigenous cultures, um, regular community grieving was essential. (laughs) For example, for the Dagara people of Burkina Faso, every month there would be a community grief ritual um, where community members are expected to be there because if that grief is not processed regularly, it seemed to have a detrimental effect on the whole community. Wow. And in the West, one of the tenants of kind of, you know, industrialized civilization, as many people refer to it, Is that we don't have any space for collective grief. We often push towards just seeing the positive all the time, having peak experiences, getting intoxicated, and you know, just going for these kind of like good or happy feelings or high. Or you know, we're really not encouraged to feel into the murky, the shadowy, uh, the pain, the loss that's all there and that is inherently a part of being alive. Let alone living in societies uh, where there is so much inequality and and collective suffering. So I think really beyond just talking about discomfort, this is about grief Mm. and being able to cultivate space and time where it is possible to feel the magnitude of the loss, the magnitude of the disconnection, not just from each other as human beings due to racism and systems of racial hierarchy, but disconnection from the earth disconnection from our ancestors disconnection from ways of living that weren't based around productivity Mm. we have a lot to grieve and i think that it's again quite difficult to do this work without doing that i think that inherent to coming to terms Uh, With the way the world has been structured, especially if you're a white person who really, you know, has just been living your life feeling that you're a good person and you weren't aware of these things and you're coming to realize the levels of inequality, it can feel quite, um, quite shocking and scary, you know, can bring up a lot of emotions. And so it's really important to allow yourself space to feel that and to cry and to, you know, do some pillow screaming if you need to, you know, to mm. really find ways to give yourself time to um, not be in your head and have to rationally and logically solve this, like this is a puzzle to fix, but actually feel actually feel what these disconnections have meant for the collective and for you, and feel the guilt or the shame or the, the confusion, the anger. There's a lot in there. So I think that when white people are feeling discomfort around these topics of racism, there's a lot more lurking under the surface Mm. um, than they necessarily think. And it does, again, relate to this um, normalization of not feeling and of chasing comfort over actually sensing into the reality of, of how we're living. And I think that, yeah, learning how to grieve and creating space for that is something that we do have to remember because so many of these practices in the West have been lost. But I would highly recommend it for people that are considering doing any kind of social change work to really build that into your your rhythm, give yourself that time, because I I really am not convinced that these systems will change if we're just coming at it the same way that colonialism has been coming at all of us, um, which is just from the mind and from domination. Um, we really need to soften and surrender to the feelings and then respond accordingly to that. So find ways to feel into it, you know, and doesn't have to be all at once. Just keep coming back. There are great meditation practices you can do. I think Radical Dharma is a beautiful book that kind of speaks to how to use meditation as a way to sit with deep discomfort and loss and grief. Um, and there are other wonderful books on grief as well, which which might be useful. But yeah, just really allowing yourself to feel because we're not going to be able to do this work simply from a cerebral place. It's too rooted in our bodies and we, we need to be sensing more.
1: And it's a huge, like you said, it's a huge puzzle. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, it's a lot of work to do this merely cognitively. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, last week I found myself so debilitated trying to figure out how was I going to solve this thing and Mm -hmm. you can't really do anything. I found myself reacting, 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 Mm -hmm. reacting, and not just like sitting and feeling, Mm -hmm. you know, there was very little sitting and feeling. So I realized that reacting wasn't going to get anything. It was just going to exhaust me. And, and I want to be able to do this work like sustainably. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I love this idea of collective grieving and, it's not built into this society, right? We, we do all of our grieving behind doors, behind closed doors. People apologize for crying all the time. Mm-hmm. Clients of mine, you know, I'm so sorry, you know, I might cry. And he's like, well, no, I, you know, I want you to cry. Like I want you to mm-hmm. sit with whatever comes up. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the questions I get is how can I get over this, whatever this is, how can I get over this? This is the, I mean, I get this on a almost near daily basis. How can I get over this as in like, how can I bypass it? Mm. Because it's deeply uncomfortable for me to feel these emotions, for me to feel this sadness, this grief, this pain, this discomfort, this shame. Mm. Uh, And for me, it's, you know, the the suggestion has always been to to just let it move through you. Mm -hmm. To like sit with it, to like, you know, invite it in for a, a cup of adaptogenic tea. (laughs) and stay as long as you need to Mm -hmm. teach me what i need to learn here and and then you know there's the door whenever you're ready to leave Mm. um so i just want to name this real quick we had in we had uh the intention was for us to talk about somatics and also drug policy the way we're going right now i think we could just hit pause on drug policy and make that a separate conversation if you're open to it, sure. just so we don't overwhelm folks and then we can just leave them with the message of the importance of embodiment. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to know other than what you've named, how can we drop into the body? I feel, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a question that maybe a lot of listeners might be having.
0: I think there's a number of different ways to do this, but I often talk to people about the body having its own language and it's not a language based on words or thoughts it's based on sensation. And I feel very blessed to have been cultivating a relationship with my body over many years now and trying to deal with uh, trauma and um, yeah, sexual violence, that I've really learned to understand what my sensations mean. Whereas again, if you're living under capitalism and we're being taught that our bodies are just productivity machines, And we should just suppress any annoying sensations um, that they're not really us because we're our minds, right? That's kind of the messaging we're receiving. And so a lot of the time we're bypassing the language and the signals of the body. So I would recommend for people to really get comfy with just noticing Mm -hmm. what sensations are coming up for you, whether it's when you wake up in in your bed in the morning Maybe before rushing out to get on with your day without touching your phone, you know, connect with your body in some way. You can put a hand over your chest, a hand over your tummy, and just take a few breaths and just notice, how is my body feeling right now? What signals is it giving me? And you can maybe come back to that throughout your day. If you're suddenly feeling, you know, a pain somewhere or you're feeling a sudden drop in energy, just being able to pause, breathe into your body. And even asking yourself, what are you trying to tell me? And just feel if anything comes up. Um, but really prioritizing learning this different language because our bodies are always communicating with us. It's just a question of whether we're listening and whether we're able to interpret what those signals mean. So I think that in itself is a whole journey to, you know, kind of meander down, but a really rewarding one. Because it, it underpins everything, in my opinion. You know, our abilities to to be, to exist, to relate to others. There's always sensation attached to that. It's just whether or not we understand what that means and how we can respond to it accordingly.
1: Yeah, so slow, slowing down. Slowing down and developing a sensitivity yeah. towards what's happening in the body. And, and that is going to take some time, especially if you're not used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Some of the research that you linked, I kind of like went down a little rabbit hole and um, landed on a wiki page for somatic marker hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And um, a fellow by the name of Damasio said that emotions are changes in both body and brain states in response to stimuli. Mm -hmm. So it's all connected. Mm -hmm. The body and the brain reacting trying to tell you something, a message, Mm -hmm. right? There's a message there. So it's worth slowing down and and trying to see, can you sense into what is that message?
0: Mm, Definitely. And this segues, for me anyway, really beautifully to something I'm feeling in the collective right now, which is like a huge amount of urgency Mm -hmm. around uh, the need to address racism. Don't get me wrong, this needs to be addressed. It needed to be addressed, you know, several hundred years ago and since then, (laughs) but I'm feeling particularly from white people who are maybe having this awakening in this moment, this sense of like, oh my goodness, we need to fix this right now. What do we do? And that urgency is not necessarily helpful. Mm. Uh, That urgency might be bypassing you actually feeling into your anger, your confusion your sadness, your guilt, maybe as to why you didn't want to notice this before or couldn't see it before. And there's a deep value in actually feeling those things because it will allow the work to be deeper and more sustainable. I'm not saying don't go out and protest. Please go out and protest. Do what you need to do to show up. But at the same time, realize that this is not going to happen overnight. I'm excited for the gains that are being made, but I have the feeling that we're going to need to do you know, continual work to really get where we need to go. And so this has to be sustainable if this is not just going to be a fleeting moment or a trending thing. Um, And to make it sustainable, it means getting out of this sense of urgency and being able to be more present with what is happening and responsive rather than reactive. Mm -hmm. Which again, show up, do what you need to do, but also really feel into what's going on.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And that said, you can check your voter registration at vote.org. You can register to vote at vote.org and you can vote by mail or like get a ballot at vote.org. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. you're in the United States, please go to vote.org and check your registration, see if you're registered. And, mm-hmm. and if you're not, you can register. And then you can get also reminders for when your local state and federal elections are coming up. Um, is there anything else that we would be doing a disservice if we didn't touch on knowing that this is a marathon and not, not a sprint?
0: Mm. Um, yes, I would say that some of the most crucial and sometimes the hardest work to do is with our own families. Mm. It's really, really important to begin to have conversations with your family about these issues, about racism, about your ancestors, you know, about who, who did your ancestors who might have been immigrants into the U S you know, who did, who did they, um, who did their whiteness exist in relation to, mm-hmm. um, and I think that once you can sort of have these conversations with your family, then it's really, it's much easier to have them with other people. Um, and because your family, you know, hopefully love you and, and feel connected to you and invested in you in some way, there's more buy-in that you can have um, in order to really talk about these issues. There's a couple of tips I would give though about how to do this
1: well. Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> yes. Please. I've done it not well. I'd love to do it better.
0: Mm-hmm. I think, uh, the two, the two C's is something I, I give to people come with curiosity and compassion. Again, in the way you were saying, this is a marathon, not a sprint. You are very unlikely to change your parents' views around racism in one conversation. That's probably not going to happen and therefore should not be the goal. An ideal goal is to be able to have a healthy, continual, curious conversation with each other that can evolve over time, that is grounded in compassion. And you as a person who may be in your awakening process around anti-racism or racial justice, hopefully can lean into compassion for yourself for not having been doing this work before or not having been seeing this as as an issue you needed to dedicate time to, and hopefully transfer some of that compassion to your parent, to your sibling, to your aunt, to your grandparent, who has also been steeped in and living in a society so entrenched with these ideas of racial hierarchy. By being able to offer some compassion to them, it means you're not going to blow up at them the first time they say a comment that's ignorant or using some language that's outdated. Because if you do blow up at them at that point, it's very unlikely that they're going to want to continue having a conversation with you. So the more you can ask questions, you know, if they do say something that's ignorant, uh, one of my favorite things to say is, tell me more about that. And what do you mean by that? Mm. Like really getting them to think about it for themselves. Because if they do that, then they'll probably have a realization that it comes from some stereotype or they'll have to actually sit with you know where that's coming from and at which stage you can ask more questions but sort of seeing it as a process of excavation rather than um a tick box (laughs) and i think that many people understandably who are coming into this work feel a lot of feelings feel anger feel disappointment and that's going to be heightened if you're speaking to your family member and you know you're just like why don't you get this it's so disappointing it's so upsetting you know, added into all the additional patterns and family stuff you might have going on anyway. So it really is a skill set to be able to practice, um, you know, in small moments, bite-sized chunks, starting to dip your toes into this subject matter and really holding out for compassion and sensitivity and curiosity. Because once they get curious, then that will spiral their learning as well. Um, But it might take that time, a bit of time to reach that Um, But to keep the conversation open and explorative will allow it to to be something that can be in progress. I think what happens nine times out of 10 is people begin the conversation with their family member, the family member says something ignorant, Uh, the person speaking to them blows up, gets reactive, there's a shutdown and and then it's that much harder to even communicate about it again. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, investing in really seeing this as something that will shift over time and expressing why it's important to you, expressing your own experience with it. Like, you know, I never saw this before, but I had this awakening moment and now I'm reflecting on lots of stuff from my own life. I mean, the more you can talk about it from your own experience as well, it's more relatable and feels less like you're saying, you over here have a problem and I am over here who's doing the right thing. Mm. You know, dispel that. Because we are all affected by these systems. Um, We may be in different places with it, but, you know, we've all grown up with these conditions. So the more you can um, keep it relatable and, again, compassionate, I think the more success you'll have in being able to have a really fruitful and ongoing conversation.
1: Yeah, I love that ongoing discourse of curiosity and compassion Mm -hmm. around something that is, you know, pretty hard to talk about. And people have like really deep seated beliefs uh, that sometimes aren't really like explored. Right. Mm-hmm. Like like you said, someone might say something ignorant, and you say, tell me more about that. Or where'd you learn that? And you know, oftentimes when we're talking to family members or, or people that have very different viewpoints, they're getting completely different information than we are. Mm-hmm. You know, like I read liberal news, they, they read conservative news. And the media spins it completely differently. Mm-hmm. So we we have to recognize where they're coming from and also where we're coming from. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be super unbiased in all of this. Um, and it's also worth being curious about. Yeah. I have a final question for you. Mm, cool. Mm. Uh, what does love... Oh wait, no. <laughs> Before I ask you that, <laughs> can you tell us uh, where we can find you and how we can work with you?
0: Sure. Um, you can find me at camillebarton.co.uk. Yeah, there's many ways you can work with me actually. I do sort of strategic consultancy around transformative justice. So if you're an organisation that is looking to kind of deepen your work in this area. That's something I can help you with. I also do quite a lot in the realm of psychedelic research. Um, Again, working with organizations or people who are interested in learning more about the war on drugs and understanding how to really allow drug policies that are being massively reformed right now to really work in service of people who've been most harmed by the war on drugs which tend to again be black folks people the global majority indigenous folks so those are the two main avenues for now um but i'm also in a process of development and uh working out how i can be of service so there may also be new offerings in the next few months so yeah feel free to stay in touch via my mailing
1: list Perfect. And I would be thrilled to continue this conversation at another, another time to talk about drug policy and also psychedelics, which I just watched a documentary on the healing powers of ayahuasca. And mm. um, very I'm very, very curious. So if you'd, if you'd come back, I'd love to have you back.
0: Great. That'd be lovely.
1: And the final question now is, um, <laughs> what does love mean to you? It's
0: mm. a good question. Love, to me, is about honoring the spiritual path for others and kind of helping to support and facilitate that. I guess this kind of is rooted in great part um, by Bell hooks's work, All About Love, where she really elegantly yeah, talks about love being a kind of process of action that's really about supporting, um, the sort of highest purpose, (laughs) um, from that person's perspective, you know, the highest truth, the highest purpose, the highest expression of someone's life force or a being's life force and being in solidarity with that and in service to that. Yeah. My love of humans, uh, of all skin tones, supposed races, um, is definitely something that propels propels me to do this kind of work because I believe that, you know, it's in service of our highest good to be closer with one another and to really see each other and to create the more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Camille. Thank you. I'm actually staring at Bell Hooks' book, All About Love, right now. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for spending this time with Camille and myself this week, learning about trauma and what you can do to start healing. And don't forget to look at the show notes. There are a ton of resources. And if you have any questions at all, don't hesitate. Send me an email, sean at thelovedrive.com. And this month's workshop, which actually starts on Thursday, June 18th, is all about emotional availability. How to sit with discomfort. How to turn towards love instead of away from it. What does it mean to be emotionally available to oneself, to one's own experience? And how do we recognize emotional availability in others so that we can have more connected and loving relationships with ourselves and with other people? This seems like important work right now that can help. Help sit with what is going on inside for you and your loved ones. If you're interested, go to thelovedrive.com forward slash emotional availability. I know it doesn't really like roll off the tongue, but that is the link. Thelovedrive.com forward slash emotional availability. It starts on June 18th, but if you're listening to this after the fact, it's still available. You can purchase it and start getting the learnings right away. Thank you. Have a beautiful week.